Hiya. Thanks so much for joining me in this recording today. I'm going to go back to the sequence of sutras that we've been looking at in chapter one. And in particular, I'm going to talk about Sutra 12. So we're going to have an in-depth discussion about um, the two principles that Patanjali offers us. So in Sutra 1.12, he says, Abhyasa, Vairagya, Bhyam, Tan, Nirodaha. So we've looked at the vrittis and the different vrittis, categories of vrittis, and um, discussed each one in depth. And so essentially in 1.12, Patanjali says, the vritti states of mind are stilled by two things, practice and dispassion. So abhyasa, the word abhyasa means practice and the Sanskrit word vairagya byam means non-attachment or dispassion. So if we look at some of the commentary, in particular from Vyasa, in relation to um, the Vrittis, he, he's actually said that they're either experienced as pleasurable, which results in attachment, or unpleasurable, resulting in aversion, or deluded, resulted in, resulting in um, some level of ignorance. So vrittis really need to be restrained in order for us to achieve any kind of concentrative state. So for us to reach some of these higher states that we talk about in, in yoga, um, we need to be able to restrain the vrittis, restrain the thoughts. So at this point, we know that yoga itself is can be classified as a state um, and Patanjali uses the word nirodaha. And in this sutra, he's pretty much letting us know that there are two ways or two key things that we need in order to achieve this state. Now, further to Vyasa's commentary, he actually um, uses what I think is a, a really beautiful analogy. He says that the stream of, of chitta, mind, can flow in two directions. It's a little bit like a river. And he says, now, it can be uplifting and it can also flow towards downfall. But Typically, when we look at how our mind flows, it moves down the channel of the senses towards the objects. So let's just say, for example, I'm sitting here at home focusing on this discussion on the philosophy or maybe even preparing the discussion, putting together my notes and thinking about how this applies to you and what value I can give to you. And that requires a certain amount of concentration. And then all of a sudden, you know, my phone starts to light up or ping. And 
automatically my mind flows outward down through my eyes and I reach out before I even realize what I'm doing and pick up my phone and to look at whatever notification, email, text message has come up. So, you know, this is our very typical way of operating in the world most of the time. And he says that through the practice of dispassion towards these sense objects, the flow of the river of the mind through this discrimination that we have actually flows back towards self. So through practice, through abhyasa, and through vairagyam, dispassion, we are able to better direct our mind, citta, inward. Now, when we do that, we, we move away from the sensual attractions, which lead, lead us more and more into our vices and into our addictions to pleasures and other experiences. So, you know, we, we, most of us have had this discussion before about social media, so just for the sake of sticking to the same example, you know, with Instagram and Facebook, we know that the interfaces are designed by the same people that design poker machines. You know, they're designed to keep us hooked in, to keep our attention on these platforms. Because as far as, you know, marketers are concerned, attention equals customers equals money. So, so much of what we're seeing with social media now is that it's extremely addictive for many people. And most people would rather hand over their wallet if they were being robbed in a dark alley than hand over their phone. We're so attached to our phone. And for most people, it's never further than at arm's reach any time of the day. You know, I remember a time where you know, you wouldn't even have your phone on you. You'd forget it constantly. You'd have very little or few ways of um, instantly having contact with, with anybody. So, you know, this idea that we are constantly distracted all of the time, even just with that one device, let alone now with smartwatches and what that is doing for our ability to concentrate and focus. And what we're seeing and what the research is showing is that we're actually becoming less intelligent because of the technology and social media we have. We no longer need to um, think and ponder to get answers because we just reach for our phone and Google it. And no longer are we really immersing ourselves in any one subject because it's enough now to watch a 15-minute video on YouTube and be a professional on any one subject. You know, I mean, this, this is so counter how we have applied ourselves for hundreds of years. And it's a very new issue that we're seeing. 
So the brain and how we think is changing. Our ability to focus, we're now, you know, I think now our focus is is equivalent to that of a goldfish in terms of how long we're able to, to focus for. So this is, I think, why yoga is so important and why an understanding of how the mind works is so important. Now, if we kind of delve into this a little further and talk about attitude to practice, and I want to spend some time on this because I think it's a very common issue amongst regular practitioners, and I certainly see it at the studio very often, and that is that we find a lot of yoga practitioners these days that are fixated on the asana, fixated on the physicality of the practice. And in particular on what what they can and can't do. Now, anytime you find yourself getting carried away with thoughts of what you're capable of doing or not capable of doing or watching something on Instagram about some, you know, fancy asana and figuring out how you're going to, you know, mold your body into that pretzel shape, you've lost one of the key principles of yoga. You've, you might be established in one type of practice because remember, there are many different elements of abhyasa. There are many different elements of practice. And when we look at practice, we're not just talking about asana. You know, asana is not even the most important when we look in terms of the pranayama and the meditation these are much more important components of the, pro- of the practice than asana. And they're going to move us much further along in terms of our ability to achieve some of these higher states and get in touch with our intuition, which is ultimately what we all want, really. When we look at the true value of what a yoga practice has to offer us, we're looking at the fact that we are operating in a world where we're needing to connect to people, And there is a lack of this, this ability to connect to people, to connect to self and to operate not from a place of reactivity, but from intuition, from a feeling place, from a knowing place. So these two ingredients that Patanjali is giving us are very, very, very important. I can't stress it enough. So if we look a little closer at the idea of practice in particular as it, as it applies to committed practitioners and teachers, we're taking into account lifestyle, diet, what time we go to bed, what time we wake up, how many hours sleep we get, quality of sleep. Um, we're looking at how we conduct ourselves in relation to others you know, are we respecting the limbs in terms of the yamas and niyamas? You know, is the asana practice appropriate for us? Pranayama, visualization, svadhyaya, self-reflection, all of these components, all of these aspects of the practice, very important. So, you know, each one of us is different. You know, we're 
different in age. We, we have different genetics. We have different body types. Your Prakriti, your makeup and mine are completely different. Your constitution and your IDCPs, your individual distinct constitutional peculiarities, as Dr. NC has, has taught us, they're all different from each other. Your state of mind, your mental capacity, your wants and wishes, you know, in terms of yoga and what you want to achieve through the practice. You know, the, this is all different for everybody. So wouldn't it make sense then that the, your yoga practice should reflect that? You know, I was having a conversation with a couple of you at the studio recently and, you know, we talked about this idea of being being a yoga teacher and what that means. And even this concept of teaching yoga is different for everybody in that if your intention is to only teach one class a week or two classes a week, then that's fine. There's no issue with that. But also your ability to teach effectively is going to be dictated by the amount of time you put into practicing because teaching yoga is such a practical thing. And so, you know, part of that is your own personal practice. So how often are you personally practicing and contributing to your own path to, you know, self-knowing? And then how much time are you investing in giving that knowledge to others as well and developing those skills and those tools that you need to be able to impart that, um, you know, the richness of yoga? Now, I would argue that perhaps for a lot of people who do an initial 200-hour training and then only teach once a week, you know, they're very limited to teaching just asana, to, you know, perhaps incorporating some level of pranayama perhaps. But, you know, there's only so far we can go in our ability to tailor a practice and read a body and understand an individual uh, based on our experience as teachers. And if we look at our current culture um, most people are practicing um, in large group settings. So this, you know, adds another complexity because in order to really implement individual tools that are appropriate for each person, large group settings don't necessarily allow for that. So if you're, you know, in a room filled with 20 people, there's only so much individual support you're going to be able to give. And most of you who've um, undergone the mentorship at the studio and have been teaching supervised, you know, one of the issues we come up against again and again is this multitasking that happens, you know, to be able to teach the group and the groups are small. And then also be, being able to support individuals in the room with modifications and variations that are appropriate for them. So you know how challenging this can be, especially early on. Beyond that, we can also practice very unconsciously and just go through the motions. And I think this is another huge issue 
um, that we we have as as regular practitioners, we can really very easily fall into this trap. In particular, when we're working with the mind. So when you know we've been practicing for a year, two years, and we've been you know practicing three, four, five, six times a week, and we have very very consistent practice. Many of the postures sequences become quite familiar. So what happens is we just go through the motions and there lacks a very conscious, deep connection to what we're doing and how we're placing the body. And this is, you know, such an important part of a practice. As well as, you know, reminding ourselves of why we're on the mat, you know, why am I here? Why have I carved aside this precious time to actually be practicing and connect to our goal, whatever that might be, whether it's for a more flexible body or whether it's, you know, to try and achieve some, um, some of the clarity of mind and peace of mind that offer, that yoga has to offer us. So, you know, all of these ideas in terms of, you know, being a regular practitioner and coming back to this stuff again and again is very important. As a teacher, it's important you understand what your student is wanting or needing from their yoga practice as well. This is very, very important. So um, without understanding or knowing what your student needs, how can you best support them? It's said that, you know, yoga should really come from the heart, that it should be very, very conscious and that it should be practiced with some level of intention. And this adds a very significant depth to the practice. And when we set an intention at the beginning of a class, we're moving through that class with that intention held there in the back of our mind that we're offering up this time, we're offering up this energy, we're offering up this space perhaps to something higher than us, to someone who needs it, sending positive thoughts, love or light to someone who we know of that might require it. It would be fair to say that when we practice in a very superficial way, then we are going to get very superficial results. And this is why some practitioners practice for years and years, but they miss this concept, this concept of, you know, you can practice very unconsciously and then what you gain from that practice is also going to be very, very surface level. If we go deeper, and this is part of what, you know, we work with in terms of the directed reflections and the other work that we do together, you know, I'm constantly encouraging you, please go deeper. Reflect on where some of these issues are coming from. Reflect on where some of these struggles are coming from. What are the types of thoughts that you're having? 
what are the types of emotions that are being triggered by certain circumstances or events, either within teaching or outside of teaching in your own personal life. This is why I'm always gently encouraging and probing you to go further. You know, it's why when I get the reflections back and I get, you know, one paragraph or you haven't even followed the questions that I've asked or set out for you can feel as a teacher like mm, very, very difficult to guide you in any way. Because if that's the quality or energy that you're putting in, there's only so much I can do. I cannot take you deeper. You have to be willing to go there And then once you've gone there, I can meet you there. But as a mentor, if you're not doing the self-reflection and if you're not prepared to go to those depths, then I can't take you there. You know, it's not up to me. It's up to you. And that's why I constantly say that you are in the driving seat when it comes to your practice, your avyasa. You know, understanding that you make the choice what type of practice and what type of energy you're going to invest in your practice. I was recently having a conversation with one of you who hand in, you know, very extensive, beautiful reflections, four and five pages long. And, you know, one of the discussions on on that was that, you know, it requires a lot of time and a lot of energy to put that together and to go to those places. And, um, and I said, you know, even if we ha- answer only one question, but we answer that question very well, it's much better than answering all questions very superficially. And then, of course, you know, there's the wanting of something more. And some of you also really struggling with this at the moment. You want more. You want to develop you want to, you have certain goals that you'd love to achieve. And there is a lack of dispassion. There's a lack of, you know, equanimity. And in wanting that, the abhyasa, the practice, is not matching the outcome that you're wanting. And of course, this is always the difficult thing as a teacher. It's exactly the same as someone coming in and saying, well, you know, I really would like to strengthen my body but I don't want to do the holds. I don't want to hold the asana and I don't want to practice often. I just want to do once a week, but you know, I I want to be strong. And some of you are encountering this issue on a very personal, emotional level when you're looking to develop yourself, develop in your teaching. And I'm, you know, I'm encouraging you to practice and to do the work. And yet, there is a lack of that commitment and that, a lack of that depth and intention to your practice of your teaching. And so therefore you're feeling very stuck and uninspired. So these are the type of things I want you to reflect on. I want you to spend some time looking at what are your expectations What are you wanting to achieve both from your practice and your teaching? And this can be applied to any aspect of your life, even relationships, even work and career, every aspect of your life. What are your expectations? What are your goals? What are you wanting from that? And then ask yourself if your energy, 
and your dedication and your abhyasa, your practice, is matching those? Is it equal? Is there a depth and an intensity to your practice that'll get you there? And then, of course, can you remain somewhat dispassionate? Can you remain mm, non-attached? Because we know that we have a limited amount of control. So we can set ourselves goals and we can have intentions and we can apply the practice. But ultimately, life happens. So can we remain non-attached to the outcome and exactly how it presents itself? There have been so many times in my life where I've applied huge amounts of effort. Those of you who know me um, know that I was brought up with a significant amount of discipline and for which I'm very grateful for now. But, you know, it also means that um, I have a real intensity that I bring to things that I'm very passionate about, yoga being one of them. And sometimes I, I, I do really struggle with this non-attachment and there have been times when I've applied huge amounts of energy and effort and then not necessarily had the outcome that I was hoping for. But interestingly enough, the outcome that I did receive was exactly what I needed, even if I couldn't see it at the time. And so this is also an element that we need to incorporate and that's, you know, we've talked about it before and that's the shraddha, the faith, that knowing that everything that is meant to unfold will unfold and that we have to continue to apply ourselves, continue to dedicate ourselves to the practice. We have to constantly remind ourselves that the ultimate goal of yoga is to connect more and more to our consciousness, to our purusha. Now, we, we know what purusha is on a mind level. You know, we've talked about it extensively in these recordings and we know what prakriti is. But ultimately, to actually experience some form of liberation, we need to experience purusha. We, we really forget this a lot of the time because, you know, anytime we find ourselves getting caught up in, you know, the yoga mat and the tights and the perfect photo and Instagram and all of these things, we're only just more and more and more caught up in the prakriti. And so we have to try and connect our minds to our purusha, to our soul, to our consciousness. And then when we manage to do that, if you've ever found found that space where you've actually 
really done an amazing amount of work and practice and reflection. And then sometimes you experience that moment where you feel a little bit more expansive. The more we spend our time focusing on Prakriti, the more we experience suffering and dukkham. So anytime you're feeling constricted, anytime you're feeling stuck, anytime you're feeling disconnected, it's because there's been an overconnecting or emphasis of your mind on prakriti, on matter, on material things. And the more and more we connect to the deeper aspect of ourselves, the more we feel light and expansive. It's important to reflect on this and to really discover what this means for you and times in your life when you've experienced both because we all have many times and for the most part we swing a lot of the time. When we look at yoga in terms of the eight limbs and we've only really looked at one, um, if you haven't listened to the recording on Satya, I'd suggest you go back and listen to that recording. But, you know, we have an entire framework of behaviours and codes of living, breathing, self-learning and development And, you know, as a teacher, it's important that I help apply that information, even though we know that the sutras are very old and we have other texts, yogic texts that are very old. All of this still applies today. We just need to start understanding how it applies today. And just while I'm on this topic, you know, I've mentioned it very early on in the recordings, but... The sutras and the way they're written is in short aphorisms. As you've, if you've been listening, you'll know they're very short. And we have some commentary given by teachers along the way. And I certainly have spent time listening to my teachers talk about the sutras. But they're designed so that the teacher can take these and apply them to the individual. So when we're interpreting these sutras, when we're trying to understand them, there is a huge amount of depth that can can really follow each and every sutra, but it's up to the teacher to actually decide what's applicable to the individual that's sitting in front of them. And this comes back to, you know, what we were discussing not so long ago about the asana and the pranayama and the lifestyle and the needs and wants, it's all individual. It needs to come from a knowledgeable teacher. You need to have a regular connection to someone and spend time in discourse with someone who can understand you, where you are at, and yoga and the tools of yoga. So much of what I've spoken to you all about is this idea that, you know, this is a lifelong commitment. 
I've been going now for over 12 years, full-time, ridiculous amounts of study, still studying, and will be until my time's up in this body. So this is an ongoing journey that we're on, teacher and student. And, you know, the beautiful thing about this is you can offer what you know, offer what you have. And I, you know, I've said this to you guys, if you're teaching, even if you're not teaching, even if you're just, you know, practicing regularly and listening to these recordings and trying to understand more of this philosophy, you know, you can offer some of these teachings when they're applicable to other individuals in your life, friends, family, and others who are open to receiving it. So, you know, we fool ourselves sometimes into saying, oh, well, you know, I've got to, I've got to get the paper, I've got to get the accreditation, or I've got to get to a certain point, or I don't know enough. And this is not how yoga is taught. We give what we know as it applies to the individual in front of us, not as it applies to us. This is very important. And um, Sri Krishnamacharya, he was the one who really, really drove this idea home that you teach what you know as it applies to the other, not as it applies to yourself. So that you can move closer and closer to your goals, move your students closer and closer to their goals of Chitta Vritti Narodaha or anywhere on that continuum because we know that there are lots of bus stops and not everyone starts on the path wanting to get to the same destination. But having some sort of um, sankalpa, having some sort of commitment Sankalpa is like a a vow that whatever actions you're about to take or going to take will be for the purpose of moving you towards the divine or it's that it's consistent with the divine, not to yourself. And so this is another element of practice in that it helps to have a higher purpose, something more than just you what you want. And we talk about this in terms of when we're stuck, shifting the focus from self to something higher than, something other than self, some other purpose. And we certainly see it with people who achieve amazing, amazing things with their time. You know, it's often through a drive and a focus other than themselves, other than material also. When you have a very clear purpose, you tend to not really focus on much else. You know, that becomes, you know, your, your primary focus and you develop more and more shraddha, more and more faith in the divine and the path that you're on. So... In terms of 
this recording. I want to spend the last little bit of time we have together just talking about Vaidagyam. This ability to remain non-attached and to give up desire. This is really difficult for some people. Certain um, constitutions and personalities really, really, really struggle. Um, And we've seen and we've heard that, you know, some people have an addictive personality. They tend to get much more tied up than others in pleasures. Anytime you find yourself complaining about not having enough of something, not having enough clothes, not having enough food, not having enough of the certain type of food, not having enough sex, not having enough of anything, you really need to take a close look at where that desire is coming from and if that desire is having control over your mind, your chitta. Uh, There is a certain component in yoga where, you know, if we're talking about vairagyam in the traditional sense, we do need to have that strength because it does require a lot of strength to give up things that are distracting and detaching us from self and they hold they hold us back and you know going back to that first example very early on in this recording the phone and social media there have been times where each and every one of you have hopped off and we've talked about it you know in detail um in our time together you know getting off facebook getting off instagram um because of the just the level of distraction and if you notice where your mind goes qualities and types of thoughts that actually come up desires definitely keep us bound you know the 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 nature of desire it actually it's very sticky and it can very much slow us down and hold us up if something's true for you and, and this is the thing because, you know, people will often get this very confused and they'll be like, well, you know, if, if we're not to have desire, then, you know, what's the point in doing anything? You know, we should just give everything up, not really try for anything, including yoga and some of the yoga states. But see, this is where the discrimination and the the insight comes in because, when we look at some of the yoga states and, and things that begin to change as we're on the path, we get a, a little more clarity each step of the way, a little more clarity, a little more understanding. We understand ourselves. We understand our strengths. We get more and more insight into some of our samskaras and patterning and where that comes from. And through that understanding and through that knowledge, we start to behave in a very conscious way. No longer are we reactive, but we start to actually understand ourselves on a much deeper level. And then the decisions that we make 
are also decisions that will lead us towards feeling that sense of expansion, that sense of freedom, joy. You know, every now and then um, there's a gelatissimo place next to the studio (laughs) and um, I quite enjoy sorbet, especially mango sorbet. And on warmer, sunnier days, if I walk past and I see the ice cream, I automatically want it. You know, it's this desire that I want to have the mango sorbet. And more often than not, I don't get it. But when I don't get it, there's often a period of time after I don't get it that I'm constantly thinking about it. You know, it crops up in my mind that maybe I should go back and it's just one scoop and, you know... What, and then I find myself like, what have I eaten today? Have I had a lot of sugar? <laughs> you know, justify, justify, justify. And um, I'm not even hungry. And I'm trying to do work and all I can think about is the mango sorbet. <laughs> I become so attached to the mango sorbet that I'm not even in reality anymore. I'm not even in the present moment anymore. And all of the clarity is gone. I'm too attached. We do this with many, many things. We do this with other people in our life, with relationships in our life, jobs, situations. The nature of matter, of prakriti, is that it's always changing. And so any desire that we have to hold on to one thing is going to prevent our movement forward, our progression. In this sutra, abhyasa and vairagyam, this is the starting point. This is, these are the two things. And remember in Sanskrit, that which is mentioned first is of more importance. So in this, you know, the first word is abhyasa, it's practice. So through practice, we're going to be able to have a little more dispassion or non-attachment. But these two things are very important. And remember, we're in the first chapter, we're very early on and You know, we've just come off the back of talking about these vrittis that we all struggle with. So abhyasa and vairagyam are two things I need you to have a reflection on. You know, how are you using these two? Have you cultivated these two qualities? What's your relationship to abhyasa and vairagyam? And in the time that you have implemented these two, has it moved you? Has it moved your state of mind? I really hope that recording 
has helped you in some way to understand this sutra a little more, but also to understand the practice a little more too. If you have any questions, you know where to find me, um, www.yogainmotion.com.au. Feel free to send me an email, but you can also leave a comment. And I love hearing from you. I recently heard from someone in Adelaide and he sent me a really beautiful email just saying he's really appreciating the recordings and and listening to them and they're helping him on his yoga journey. So if you're listening out there, you know who you are, keep going, keep practicing. And um, to the rest of you, I'll see you at the studio real soon. Bye for now.